Hello and welcome to not an episode of the British Sitcom History Podcast. This is just something to tide you over between our series. And what I've got for you today is uh, just the audio from a video that I put up on our YouTube channel, British Sitcom History. So if you would like to go and see this with video elements involved, then do go to the YouTube channel. But I just thought for the podcast listeners, I'll throw this out here because it should still work as audio. So this is from a series I do on YouTube called Forgotten Sitcoms, in which I look at some less remembered shows. And this week it is Get Well Soon, which came up in our conversation on Steptoe and Son because it was written by Ray Galton about Galton and Simpson's early experiences in a tuberculosis sanatorium. So please do enjoy. Hello and welcome to Forgotten Sitcoms, where we take a look at a show that does not appear to have lingered long in the memory of the nation. So today we're going to be looking at Get Well Soon. This only had one series back in 1997, and uh, it didn't exactly get a lot of notice at the time, hasn't gained much traction since, but there are some interesting elements about it, so uh, let's get stuck in. So Get Well Soon is set in a tuberculosis sanatorium in 1947. That may seem like an odd place for comedy, but in sitcom the situation just needs to be a reason for a set of disparate characters to be stuck together. It does lend itself to a certain gallows humour, very dark humour, when people around you are sick or dying. And uh, indeed this is not shied away from in Get Well Soon. Uh, The opening episode has one of our principal characters being moved into the sanatorium and taking the bed of a recently deceased man. However, before I get into the actual plot of this show, I'd like to look at the origins of Get Well Soon, because they are quite interesting themselves as part of sitcom history. This show was born of the real-life experiences of Ray Galton and Alan Simpson, the legendary comedy writers responsible for Hancock's Half Hour and Steptoe and Son. So back in 1947, when they were both still teenagers, Galton and Simpson were both placed in Milford Sanatorium in Surrey, They'd contracted tuberculosis, and at that time, before widespread use of antibiotics, TB was a highly contagious, often lethal disease. So the patients were quarantined in these out-of-the-way medical establishments. Maybe one of the problems with Get Well Soon is that by 1997, this was something that was pretty much forgotten by the general populace. So you lose that shared experience that you you get with period set sitcoms like Dad's Army or or Heidi High. There's a nostalgia element to these uh, that people can relate to. And I think Get Well Soon is missing that. Plus, it doesn't really embrace the 1940s setting. It's, It's set in that period. The costumes are correct and everything. But there's something not quite tallying with... Certainly my idea of the 40s as someone looking back, there's a lot of entendre innuendo, which I guess has its place, but it feels more modern. And it it takes place even within relationships that perhaps it shouldn't. So um, uh, one of our principal characters and his mother, uh, he often refers to her sex life in... You know, in a roundabout way, but that feels kind of weird even now, but certainly in the 40s, it just feels like, would a young man talk to his mother about that sort of thing? Well, it's a shame, cos I won't be here. I'm off to Margate for the week with Leonard. I did tell you, he's got the use of a chalet. What about me? Well, you'll still be here, won't you, but the chalet won't. (laughs) He's 
Mm. only got the use of it twice a year. Mm. I expect you'd be getting the use of you more than that. <laughs> of course, if you want me to give up my life for you. I'm still a young woman, Roy, if you haven't noticed. I'm only 40. I still have bodily needs. Oh. But if you want me to devote myself entirely to you, to live the life of a nun. No, don't disappoint South East London. <laughs> we have a character called Geoffrey, who is an orderly, um, who is quite a nice character, actually. Brings a lot of energy in as uh, as an orderly, just pops in and out of scenes. But the, he, he's very camp, This in a very classic comedy camp way, I suppose. Yeah, I know there were people like that in the 40s, but it, it seems very brazen uh, for that time. Uh, you know, at a time when homosexuality was still illegal. Excuse my little Noel Coward impression. It was my party piece, Below Decks. Oh, yes. <clears throat> Where were you during the war? Devonport, Chatham. Did you see any action? I should say so. Those pubs in Portsmouth on a Saturday night. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, did you see any fighting? Yes, especially when the Yanks joined in and the Canadians. Very nasty. Broken bottles, piano through the window, you know, the sort of thing. Makeup scattered, frocks torn. Thank God there weren't any women involved. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I don't. I get you're not going to embrace that uh, in a in a 1990s show, but also it just makes the whole thing feel out of time. It doesn't feel like it's set in the 40s. If this was set in a hospital ward in the 90s, would it be any different? Really, I don't think it would be different enough to justify that time setting. But of course, it is set at that time because of this real life experiences, and by that I'm referring to the writer Ray Galton, who based this show on events and people he met uh, himself 50 years previously. But that autobiographical element and the sort of sitcom provenance that that provides is going to be lost on your average viewer. You know, most people just tuning in, they're not going to be aware of that. You know, for me, a real sort of sitcom nerd, that's great. It gives the show an extra dimension. But does that come across? Well, let's find out. Let's get stuck into the plot. Oh! Oh, Golden Bennett, who are you? He gave me a start there. I thought for the moment it was George. George? Yes. He died in that bed a few days ago. <laughs> I'm not used to seeing anyone else there. He died in this bed? Yeah. Right where you're sitting. I hope they change the sheets for you. Well, so do I. So episode one uses a pretty typical writing device of introducing a new character, and they become the audience proxy in terms of establishing the norms of this world, the, the people we are meeting. In this case, it's Roy, played by uh, Matthew Cottle. Now, he's brought to the sanatorium by his mother. We establish she's quite overbearing, but she's very self-interested. And uh, the mother does become a regular character with her own subplot running through the series. In fact, the whole series attempts to be episodic, but also have these uh, storylines running through. Usually the the more subplot things with the mother uh, and, uh, and a love interest and that sort of thing. I'm not sure that balance works very nicely. It, it, this feels like it would be work a lot better just being a simple episodic thing. You know, this is today's little challenge. This happens and then it comes to an end. And then by the next episode, we're back to status quo. And there are a couple of episodes where it, it does that a bit better. I'll get onto that in a second. But first, back to this original setup. So Roy, our new patient, he's put in a ward with Brian, who is the Alan Simpson cipher here. Now, he's played by Eddie Marsden, and they immediately fall into conflict. So they clash at first, but ultimately they find reasons to stick together. And, of course, it means we can have that conflict at the beginning, which is, of course, a great source of comedy. Look, sister... I know beds are hard to come by. There's a million people waiting to get in. But look at it from my point of view. I would remind you I've had two peg out on me. <laughs> I mean, look at him. 
I mean, he's ill, isn't he? Tell you the truth, I don't give him more than six weeks. I know when death is staring me in the face. <laughs> so just a quick word about those two main actors. Matthew Cottle was doing the show at the same time as Game On. Uh, that's the sitcom he'll most likely be remembered for, I suppose. However, I mean, that's not necessarily for the best because he's basically playing the same character. You know, that sort of softly spoken, put-upon young man. He, he's struggling to stand up for himself. And he's alongside a more obstreperous and confident character. When I gave Claire an orgasm for the first time, I was ever so proud. Before that, the proudest I'd ever been was when I passed my banking stage ones. But there's no comparison, I can tell you. You, uh, just give her the one orgasm per session sort of thing, do you? Wait, yes, actually. Well, you do realise the national average is seven, don't you? So, you know, it's it's all very samey-samey, but, you know, he does it very well. That's what Matthew Cottle does. And he brings a, a, a really sweet likability to Roy. Eddie Marsden was still a relative unknown at this point. He had a handful of TV credits, a, a notable guest appearance in Game On, in fact. You know, recording this over two decades later, Eddie Marsden is a well-known actor and going on to be in small roles in big Hollywood movies for some bizarre reason. He's made the leap across the ocean. But he is a very good actor, so I can't uh, begrudge him anything. But here he's giving a pretty traditional comedy performance. Um, he, he's not breaking any moulds here, but again brings a real likability to a character that could really be annoying. He's, he's, he's quite antagonistic in a lot of ways. Uh, but yeah, he, he brings a charm to it, which I think is really necessary. What's wrong, sir? Write a murder mystery. The man in black. This is your man in black. <laughs> They're always popular. There's a BBC repatriate number 20. We could use him. Gordon Partridge. He was in Dick Barton's special agent. Jock, Snowy, quick, get him! Ooh, ah, get off! Ooh, ah, quick! Untie me from the railway line, Snowy, before the 7.15 from Provence Bay comes round the corner. And you're forgetting something, sir. They put the clocks forward last night. Good heavens, Jock, that means... Aye, you were run over half an hour ago. So, there are several other main characters, and the majority of them are established in this first episode, and I actually think this is a really good example of economical writing. It doesn't feel too heavy on exposition, it doesn't feel like we're missing out on gags to accommodate a lot of setup. Now, that doesn't necessarily go to say that all the characters there are worthwhile. I think there's some a lot of screen time given to characters that are just not justifying it. And then a, another subplot, which never really pays off well enough is uh, Roy meeting the widow of the, the man whose bed he's taken. So, you know, this patient has died. So she's the recently bereaved widow and, and she takes to Roy and it's, it's first, it's kind of like, oh, is she just mothering him? Is she just, she needs something to replace her dead husband? And it's a bit muddy and I think it's deliberately muddy. I think it's um, supposed to be ambiguous. Is she using him for something? Is is she just uh, sad and, and lonely? You know, his mother takes against her straight away, so there's loads of conflict there. And there is a bit of a reveal in terms of, like, the skeletons in her closet and things like that, but it, it doesn't feel like it's paid off, and there's a lot of energy that goes into that that 
that feels like it should be more. Perhaps they were setting something up for a second series that never happened. Uh, but yeah, she's played by Samantha Beckinsale, who whose comedy lineage is, of course, uh, more through her father, Richard Beckinsale. Uh, but she she is the sort of actor you would see turning up in, in little sitcom roles like this and, and does a solid job. No complaints really there. But the character feels like it either needed to do more or do nothing. Get Get rid of it. Now, the supporting characters that do work a bit more are the ones who aren't trying to build any narrative into it. They're just there. They're the, they're the side show. They're the, the, the comedy character that'll come in, uh, knock about a little bit, and then go off again. So, like I said earlier, Jeffrey the Orderly, played by William Osborne, who just pops in and, and will give a bit of gossip or whatever, just set up a plot or something like that. Uh, and then we have a character played by Robert Bathurst called Squadron Leader Fielding, who is you know, uh, an RAF pilot who still thinks the war is going on, and he thinks everyone around him are uh, uh, his men who aren't doing their job properly and again that's a good character but it it, it also feels like something's not working here all right now listen here osman i'm going to give it to you straight it's berlin tonight you may as well go in the deep end as anywhere now we're flying in over the dutch coast tonight so we can expect flak all the way as it's a bomber's moon the night fighters will be up so it'll be pretty lively up there i can tell you i suggest we both get some shut eye Write a few letters home. Blackie! Come boy! Come boy! Come on! Under the bed! Under the bed! Whoa, all right then. I think it's just because it goes full in with this sort of PTSD thing and then never really deals with it properly. It needs to hit the pathos of that situation, the kind of tragedy of it. My favourite supporting character probably is Brian's mother. I play by Patsy Rowland, who is herself a, a, a bit of a sitcom veteran. You know, she was already playing a, a mother of adults at this point. She's been around a long time. And she's that classic, you know, 1940s housewife, very sturdy. She's not going to be phased by the chaos going around her. Really well written, really well performed. Probably the, the best thing in the show. I lost my abbey during the war, Mr Osborne. Mr Clapton was in the RAF. Oh, one of the Brill Cream boys, eh? No, he was bald. <laughs> he was attached to a barrage balloon unit. That was the trouble. He was attached to the barrage balloon when it broke loose. Mm. He was last seen dangling over Croydon, heading towards the Ruhr. So they never found him, then? Well, they're not sure. They found his wallet in a pub in Dover. <laughs> And there is one more character that I would like to mention, and the reason I've left him to last is because he's not introduced until episode three. And it's a really weird choice. Episode three feels like it's the start of a new show. All those ancillary characters that I've been moaning about, the mother and the widow and and all that sort of stuff, they're pretty much removed completely. We're not interested in them. And we bring this new character into the mix, Norman Tucker, played by Hugh Bonneville, at the time relatively unknown. And he's an upper-class snob who is forced to share a ward with Roy and Brian. You? You read the Times Literary Supplement, a Yahoo like you? Why not? I'm going to spend my time in this establishment educating myself. Listen, sunshine, a little learning is a dangerous thing. You'll be a lot happier pig-ignorant, believe me. (laughs) You haven't the mental capacity or the educational discipline to deal with the complexities of the subjects herein. That's the trouble with the workers. They get sent up to Ruskin College by the trade unions, come out and think they can run the country. Well, they can't. (laughs) So you just stick to your film fun and you won't get angry and confused and start writing plays. 
and that's it straight away. We got you got your classic class divide. It's bread and butter for sitcom, British sitcom at least. The conflict between them all works really excellently. You have Roy and Brian able to partner together against a common enemy. Bonneville plays it really nicely with that just the right level of arrogance. But the the character comes a cropper quite often and he, he can play the kind of silly slapstick stuff as well. And they will, uh, a couple of times, they they build the plot around him, like what he's doing, what he's up to. And that's the perfect setup. It's episode three and five are the ones where I'm like, well, this is the show. This is what it should be. But then on the other episodes, they're just jamming all this extra stuff in that doesn't carry the weight. And all it does is pull focus away from our central point. And this is series one. It's not like we're episodes and episodes and episodes into it. And they're having to draw in other characters to, to come up with new ideas. It feels like they're trying to build something bigger before they've established the basics. And that's probably my main problem. The, my, the word I would use for this show in general is unfocused. It's it's just too loose. And not just in terms of the characters and the plot. The production is loose as well. You know, it, it feels relatively cheap, but I expect that with sitcom. I haven't got a problem with that. But then there's just these occasional things like Eddie Marson's character, Brian, is repeatedly referred to as being fat. But he's not. And I wasn't quite sure what they were trying to make of that. And then in one of the later episodes... It's actually a, a kind of relevant plot point that he's overweight and so he can't fit into his clothes. But then to make that work, they've just shoved a cushion up his jumper. It's it's such a lack of effort. Like I say, it's it feels like the production is slapdash. It, you really have to be funny to get away with that. You know, perhaps the problem here is that that more focused setup that I mentioned, that those three principal characters on the ward... Maybe that is a bit too simple. It's too straightforward, you know, and it is basically only when I laugh. So maybe they're throwing all this other stuff in it to try and inject some new ideas. And, you know, well, that's the problem. There is a lack of new ideas. That period setting, like I said, should be different to some everything else, but it, it doesn't feel like it's embraced. There's a tendency towards farce, which never feels like a good long-term solution for comedy. But, you know, what does work are those principal characters. Their relationship to each other is nice. And the writing, in terms of pure comedy, is very solid. There's a lot of great one-liners, really nice line and in, in put-downs. And you're no better than you should be, Mrs. Owl. I've had better than you for two and six in Portsmouth. A man like you would have to pay for it. And, you know, I, I, I'm coming across quite negative here about Get Well Soon. But ultimately, it was watchable. You know, it was watchable. There are those good lines. There's a few solid characters. It's just all a bit unremarkable. And particularly considering its lineage and the person writing it, it needs to be better. Or at the very least, it should feel more personal. You know, there is a lot of autobiographical elements here. Some of the scenarios that Roy and Brian get themselves into, I've heard about before in interviews with Galton and Simpson. So... Why does it still feel like a very impersonal product just from a professional writer, you know, churning stuff out? So Get Well Soon is something of a misfire. Perhaps no surprise, it, it never made it to a second series. But certainly worth a watch if you're the sort of person who likes to dig up old sitcoms. I'll leave you with another of the highlights of the show, which is the theme tune. It's composed by Christy Hennessy. It's sung by Alad Jones. It's very catchy. It's been stuck in my head for weeks. And it, it does feel of the period, although I understand it's a new composition. But it, it has a kind of 
creepy ethereal vibe to it. it it's, it's quite weird but i think that really works well to establish the scene because we're in a hospital where people are dying it it should be quite a tragic and lonely world but uh, you know obviously it's a comedy as well we're in this over our heads and we can't get out maybe if we shout someone there might let us out i must admit i have my doubts 